Our Old Testament reading is Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against his kinsmen. So she said, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roai. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The word of the Lord. One ancient hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning, both those in the sanctuary, uh, those outside, and those in the live stream, and, and we do hope that the rain continues to, to hold off toward that end. And wherever we're joining from, again, it's, it's the word of God that brings us together. It's the word of God that's proclaimed to the church. It's, it's the word of God that creates the church, and it's the word of God that crafts us into what God intends us to be. So as we come together and before we look at this passage, let us turn to God in, in prayer that the purpose of his word might go forth, like Fred said, both around the world, but also here at One Ancient Hope. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can engage it together. We thank you that you have given it to us, 
and we thank you for the way it works in our lives. And Father, we do pray that all the words that would follow would be faithful to your word and that you would use them to, to apply your word to our, to our hearts, that we would love you, to our, our heads, that we would know you, and, and to our hands, Father, that we would, we would live out in response to the promise of your gospel, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Madeline Lengel's uh, science fiction classic, A Wrinkle in Time. It's, it's a very popular uh, book. I, I know it was recently turned into a movie as well, but it's, it's a part of a longer series. And the second book in that series is a sequel called A Wind in the Door. And if you're familiar with the first book, uh, the second book has the same heroine. We, we find Meg Murray. And in this second book, she has a particular role. And in the second book, she is given the task of being what is called a, quote, namer. She has the role of, of telling people who they are. And this is, is very important because, as the story tells us, one of the chief, wep- one of the chief weapons of, of the darkness that seeks to destroy everything in the universe in that book is the power of, quote, unnaming, quote, making people not know who they are. And so as part of this role, Meg is presented with a trial. She must identify the real Mr. Jenkins. And if you're familiar with the story, Mr. Jenkins is her former principal and probably the person that she detests the most. And what she has to do is identify the real Mr. Jenkins from two imposters. And the point of the trial is is showing the connection between knowing and loving. Meg is told, quote, love. That's what makes persons know who they are. So in order for for, for Meg to identify the real Mr. Jenkins... In order for Meg to name Mr. Jenkins, she has to learn to love Mr. Jenkins. And as long as she detests Mr. Jenkins, she's in no place to know who he really is, and she's in no place to name him. It's not until she loves Mr. Jenkins does she truly see him. And not until she loves him does she truly know him and who he is. And actually, it's not until he's shown love that Mr. Jenkins himself comes to know who he actually is. And it's interesting because the Christian tradition has long affirmed this connection between knowing and loving. It's talked about the the intellect, that faculty by which the human knows, and it's always been coordinated with the will, the faculty by which the human loves. So for the Christian tradition, love and knowledge have always been inseparable. If you are going to know rightly, you must love rightly. And for Meg to truly know Mr. Jenkins, she needs to love him. She must learn to love him. And really, for anyone to truly know another person, we must learn to love one another. To know, we must love And all of this, as we will see, is based upon the one who knows 
and loves and names us perfectly. Which brings us to the present passage, which I want to look at under two headings. First, we find the servant who is unseen. There's not love, there's not knowledge, there's not seeing. But still, this passage brings us to hope. We come to the second part, the servant who is seen, who is known, who is loved, who is truly seen. So let's start with the servant who is unseen. Well, to begin with, I, I think we need to talk about this chapter a little bit because it's actually a very hard chapter. In this chapter, we see Abraham and Sarah at their absolute worst. We see Abraham and Sarah treating Hagar as a mere piece of property. And what are we to make of this? Because this is, this is the Bible. This is the word of God. This is the word of the one who loves us, who redeems us, who created us. So what are we to make of this passage wherein someone is treated so, so poorly? Well, actually, of, of all things, um, what's helpful here was, was, for me at least, was an interview I came across about the most recent uh, James Bond movie, actually, of, of all resources. Um, and the writer and actress, uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, she was talking about her work on the screenplay. And she made an interesting point about the James Bond franchise going forward. She said the following, quote, The important thing is that the film treats women properly. James Bond doesn't have to. He needs to be true to his character. And what she was saying was, there's a distinction. There's a distinction between James Bond, the notorious womanizer, and the film itself. James Bond might not change, but it's important that the film actually expose his conduct for what it is. The film itself must treat women properly. And that same distinction applies here as well. Abraham and Sarah certainly have not treated Hagar properly. We will see them do terrible things. Like Bond, we will see their character come to light more fully. We find that they are fallen. We find that they make wretched mistakes. We find out about what the Bible really is. The Bible is not a book of heroes. The Bible is a book of broken people like Abraham, like Sarah, like you, and like me who are in desperate need of God's grace. And while Abraham and Sarah will not treat Hagar properly, God in this account will absolutely treat her properly. So let's return to that theme of, of naming. We talked about naming in light of Meg Murray. And as one commentator points out, it's, it's quite interesting because Abraham and Sarah, they never actually refer to Hagar by name. If you go through and read the text, you will find that again and again and again, she's only referred to as servant. And in a sense, she's denied her, her personhood. She's treated as a tool. She's instrumentalized. And theologian Oliver O'Donovan is, is very helpful here because he helps us understand what does it mean to actually instrumentalize something. And he gives us the following criteria. He says to instrumentalize an entity is to reduce that thing only to the good it offers to some other thing. If we instrumentalize grass, we see grass only as food for sheep. If we instrumentalize granite, the rock, we see it only as a foundation for buildings. 
If we instrumentalize a dog, we see it only as protection against trespassers. O'Donovan says that when we think of it like this, they are only goods for. We're only understanding something, grass, granite, or dogs, by the good they offer something else. These things might be valuable, but when we only know something by the good it provides for something else, we don't really know that thing. We've instrumentalized it. We've exploited it. Grass is just an instrument for sheep. Granite is just an instrument for buildings. And dogs are just an instrument for property protection. O'Donovan says we must actually know the goods of the things. We must love and know the things themselves. We have to know grass according to its beautiful green cover. We have to know grass by the soft blanketing that it provides, hillsides and, and fields. Knowing grass apart from any good it might offer the sheep, knowing granite apart from any good it might offer the building, knowing a dog apart from any protection it might offer against intruders. Which is as much as to say, to know these things, we must love them. To know grass and granite and dogs, we must love them. We must love what they are and not just what they can do for us. But sadly, Abraham and Sarah take O'Donovan's warnings to an even worse place. They haven't instrumentalized something. They've instrumentalized someone. Hagar is only known according to the good that she can offer someone else. She's only a good for someone else. Sarah becomes impatient. She's worried. The promise of God has not yet happened. She's waiting for a child, so she decides to take matters into her own hands, and she takes Hagar, and she treats her only as a means for having a child. And so what happens to Hagar? Hagar is reduced to a particular function of her body. And this kind of arrangement was a common practice at the time. But the cultural popularity of the practice certainly did not make it acceptable in the sight of God. And while we rightly balk at this, we have to stand back and ask ourselves, are there ways that we ourselves do the same thing? Because our culture certainly has its own way of reducing people to one particular body function, using them as instruments and using them as tools. Certainly this is the case with pornography, but also for much modern sexual activity, wherein such intimacy operates free from any obligation or any commitment. For Sarah and Abraham, a person has been instrumentalized for procreation. For us, they have been instrumentalized for pleasure. But in each case, they have been instrumentalized. This is why the Christian conviction of keeping this intimacy within marriage is so, so important. So serious is God that we should never instrumentalize another person, never reduce them to one particular function of their body, that such intimacy can only be practiced within a context of each person giving themselves fully and wholly to the other. God simply will not allow us to reduce other people to tools for meeting our own desires. This is not prudish. This is protective. This is not repressive. This is realistic. This keeps us from seeing others as instruments, as tools for simply fulfilling our desires, for simply meeting our appetites. Such intimacy without the lifelong commitment to the whole person 
is the modern equivalent of reducing Hagar to the namelessness of servant, of knowing a person only according to what they can offer you. But of course, we've all done this. We've all fallen short of this ethic. We've all instrumentalized persons in this way by our thoughts or by our actions or by both. But again, this brings us to why this story is important and what the Bible is. The Bible is not a book about heroes. Again, the Bible is a book about people like Abraham and Sarah, about people like you and me who are broken in need, God's grace. And we see that things get even worse for Hagar. After she does become pregnant, we find perhaps the most callous portion of the whole passage. Hagar is pregnant, and her and Sarah are set at odds against each other. And Sarah comes and complains to Abraham. And what does Abraham say in verse 6? He tells Sarah the following. Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. What does Abraham tell Sarah? He says, do as you please, whatever you want with this woman who is not even worthy of a name. Yes, Abraham has had relations with her. Yes, she is carrying Abraham's child. Yes, according to cultural conventions, she's even a kind of wife of Abraham. But she's just a tool, an instrument, simply a good for. And then we see Sarah respond. The other half of verse 6 reads as follows. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Now, Old Testament scholar Gordon Winham, he points out that this verb translated as dealt harshly with her is actually the same verb we have that describes the treatment of the Egyptians to the Hebrews at the beginning of the Exodus account, where the Hebrews are the slaves of the Egyptians. And he goes on and he actually translates this verb as humiliated. So what do we find here? And remember, the original audience is those Hebrews that, are, that have just escaped Egypt and they're wandering through the, the wilderness. And they're told that long before the Egyptians humiliated the Hebrew people, we find here a Hebrew humiliating an Egyptian woman. Again, The Bible is a book of broken people who need God's grace desperately. Whether Egyptian or Hebrew, whether Easterner or Westerner, whether progressive or conservative, we're all broken. We've all humiliated, and we've all been humiliated. And in light of such treatment, we should not be surprised that Hagar herself is never referred to by her name. She's not known. She's not loved. She's not seen. She's simply the servant. She's simply a means for them to have a child, and so they can treat her in whatever way they want. Just like Mr. Jenkins, she does not know who she is. Because this callous and this horrible treatment cannot be the basis of her personhood. If so, she would be letting those who do not know her, who do not love her, who do not see her, she would be letting them name her. She would be letting them tell her who she is. But sadly, this treatment is not without effect. What have Abraham and Sarah told her? What have they implied to her? 
Her only worth is in having this child. That's her good for. That's where her worth lies. And so how does Hagar respond? Well, when she becomes pregnant, she holds this worth over Sarah, the one who could not have a baby. If my worth is in having children and I've had a child and this one can't, of course I'm going to set this worth over my mistress, Sarah. And so what do we find in verse 4? And Abraham went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And what is translated here as looked with contempt? The, the, the standard Old Testament, Old Testament lexicon, it, translated, it translates it as follows, quote, to be insignificant in the eyes of, to count as nothing. To count as nothing. What has happened? Hagar again and again and again has been counted as nothing. And how does she respond? We see a kind of vicious cycle here. She seeks to count Sarah as nothing. And so we see that Hagar herself has believed the lie, believing that her worth is found only in having this child, and then that becomes the basis for her pride over Sarah. And we can all of us relate. I remember hearing a, uh, an account at, at one point about someone, and um, he was a child, and at one point he was at some kind of, of social gathering, and one of the adult family members introduced him to someone else. And after the introduction, he, he sort of stood there. He wasn't sure what to say, and he was silent. And after 10 or 20 seconds, both the adults turned away, and, and the family member turned to the other adult and said, well, that's so-and-so, and that's pretty much all that he says. And what was his response? Well, this person often let that comment set the terms for his own worth. If I'm going to have worth, he thought, then I need to know how to talk to people, how to be social, how to make a good impression. And we all have things like this. Maybe it's a dismissive comment about your character, your abilities, your appearance, your status, your background, your education, your culture, your gender, your race. We all have something, and we are all like Hagar, being more affected by the words and actions of others than we realize. Not only have we let these things, these comments, take our worth, but we've actually let them set the very conditions and criteria of our worth. Not only have others harshly criticized who we are, but we have let these criticisms set the very criteria of our personhood. To have this kind of education, to fit in this kind of culture, to have that kind of job, to have this kind of status, we think then we will have worth. This has been done to us, but we have also, all of us, done this to other people. Again, we all, like Abraham and Sarah, humiliate, and we all, like Hagar, have been humiliated. But again, the Bible is not a book about heroes, but a book about broken people in desperate needs of God's grace. And so the story does not end here. And that brings us to our second and our final point, the servant who is seen. 
Something happens to Hagar on her way from Canaan to Egypt. This is when she is in the most tragic of circumstances. She's in her most vulnerable position. She's alone on a dangerous road. She's near death. And it's in this position, it's in this place, that perhaps for the very first time, she is actually seen. The angel of the Lord comes to her. God himself comes to her. We've said throughout this series that the Christian faith is not our journey to God, but rather it's God's journey to us. And here we find God coming, finding Hagar, knowing her, loving her, and seeing her. How does he address her? He comes to her and he says, Hagar, servant of Sarah. This is the first time that she has been addressed by name. And it's important because her name, Hagar, precedes servant. Yes, she is the servant of Sarah, but being the servant of Sarah does not define her personhood. She is Hagar. That's her name. And what exactly is a name? What's in a name? We can often think of a name just as a kind of description, as a pointer, something that designates us, something that refers to us. And if that was the case, then Hagar and servant of Sarah wouldn't really make a difference. They'd be the same term. They'd have the same purpose. they both pick out the same person, this woman here in the wilderness on the verge of death. But that's not just what a name is. And, and towards that end, philosopher Charles Taylor makes, makes a very important and insightful point about language, and in particular, the role of names in language. Taylor says the following, quote, Names play an important role in invocative uses of speech, but they function here not to fix reference, but to call, to call up, to invoke. If you know the name of someone, you can call him. Think about all of the ways that you can say Hagar. You could say it with anger, Hagar. You could say it with confusion, Hagar. Or you could say it with the deepest of sympathies, oh, Hagar. These are all different ways of acknowledging her and her situation. So then how does God address this woman? How does he use the name of Hagar? How does he call upon her? He's saying, Hagar, I see you. I see what you have been through, and I'm here. This is how God calls upon Hagar. But it gets better. God does not just address her by name, but he gives Hagar a wonderful promise. And it's important because the promise that he gives her, if you remember back to Genesis 15, actually echoes the very promise that God gives to Abraham. He tells her that her children will be without number. Her offspring will be so many you will not be able to number them. And then God goes further because he doesn't just name Hagar, he actually names the boy in Hagar's womb. He says this boy will be called Ishmael. And to be sure, this boy will live a life of contention. He'll be at odds in some way, shape, or form with his neighbors. But nonetheless, his name means God hears. And how does Hagar respond to this promise? 
In verse 13, she says, You are a God of seeing. Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. This is a very, very surprising passage. When we think about the account of creation, we see humanity naming all of the animals. We even see Adam naming Eve. But something much, much greater is happening here. This is the only place in all of the Old Testament that a human names God. To the one who is nameless, God gives the privilege and responsibility of naming his very self. And why? Why is it that Hagar is in a position to name God? Well, the next line gives us a bit of a clue. Verse 14 tells us, Therefore, the well was called Bahir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Bahir Lahai Roy, which if, if you've got a footnote, it should tell you that this translates into the well of the living one who sees. The well of the living one who sees. And what this tells us is that apparently Hagar did not stop by just saying, you are the God who sees, but she went on to say, you are the living one who sees. And why is this important? Why is it important that she refers to God as the living one? Well, actually, a few hundred years later, God's covenant name will be revealed to the Israelites. The name of of Yahweh, the name of I am. And the Christian tradition has always associated this name with God being life itself. God is life itself because he is the one who gives life to all of its creatures. And that's why both the term Yahweh and the name living one are both based on the same verb, the verb denoting life. And so Hagar has not only named God, but she's come very, very close, we might say, to naming him with the very name that God revealed to Moses. He is the living one. He is life itself. He is, I am who I am. And so how does Hagar know this? Well, she knows this because she looks and sees God from the vantage point of death. She's alone in the wilderness without food, without water. She has no resources for life left to her own. She will die. But it's from this position, this vantage point of death, that she truly sees God. She sees that God is the living one. Only at the point of death is she able to see life itself. And of course, God was always the source of life. God creates, sustains, and loves every atom in Hagar's body. But she didn't know it. Apart from this place of death, he had never appeared to her as the living one. She had Abraham. She thought she was dependent upon Abraham. Yes, Abraham treated her terribly, but Abraham did offer her food and shelter. This was the one she thought she was dependent on. But now, here from this place of death, separated from Abraham, she realizes the one on whom she is truly dependent. And it's not Abraham. 
It's the God who sees, the God who knows, the God who loves, the God who gives life. And life here takes many forms as the living one breaks into the life of Hagar. To begin with, he provides a well, so she's able to get water, no small thing in a parched land. We also find that that God is forming and preparing offspring after offspring, generation after generation in Hagar's womb. God knows Ishmael, but God also knows every single descendant that will come from her womb because he will give each and every one of them life. He gives life. He alone can speak of her many offspring because he alone is life itself. But there's more life still that we find here. We're relational creatures. We exist within community. As humans, we cannot live without community. And towards that end, God tells Hagar a very, very hard thing. He tells her to return, to return to Abraham and Sarah, to return to those broken relationships. But surprisingly, here too, we find life where before there was only death. The death of treating another person like a piece of property. And we don't have many details here, but we find a very important detail in verse 15. We read the following. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. When we look at this detail, what do we find? Well, first, we find that this child, this child is not counted as the child of Sarah. This child is counted as the child of Hagar. What else? Well, we find that this child is named Ishmael. And if that's the case, then both Abraham and Sarah have to acknowledge something. They have to listen and see and know Hagar. God didn't talk to Abraham and Sarah about this child and his name. God talked to Hagar. And if they know the name and if they actually name the child Ishmael, then that means that they have listened, they have seen, they have heard Hagar. They've trusted that, yes, you have spoken to God and you have been spoken to by God. They can no longer ignore her. They can no longer treat her as an instrument. God has opened Abraham and Sarah's eyes. And for the first time, she is heard and she is known by her community. Again, God brings life into this situation. And so what do we learn here? We learn that when God is seen, he is seen as the one who gives life. But there's more. God will be seen again, and he will again be seen as the one who gives life. At this passage, with this passage, seeing God is at the forefront. So we need to let it teach us to see God rightly where he has presented himself most clearly. Again, he's not just the God who sees, but he is the God who is seen. So how do we see him? Well, just like Hagar, God himself will become the servant who is seen. And just as God opened the eyes of Abraham and Sarah to truly see Hagar, so too 
must God open our eyes to truly see this servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christ tells the disciple, the disciple Philip in John 14, 9, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Hagar was told to see God, and so are we, and this is how we do it. Did the disciples truly see him, though? Or like Abraham and Sarah at the beginning of the narrative, were they not really seeing, not really knowing, not really loving the servant that stood before them? And why is it so hard to see? Well, think about it. If Abraham and Sarah are really going to see Hagar, they can no longer treat her like this anymore, but even more, they have to acknowledge wrongdoing. To see Hagar, they have to repent, which they seem to have done in the naming of this boy Ishmael. Similarly, if we are to see Christ, we must acknowledge our own wrongdoing. It is one thing to acknowledge the name Ishmael, the name which means God hears, but are we willing to acknowledge the name of Jesus, the one whose name means the Lord, Yahweh, the living one, saves? Because if God saves, that means that we ourselves need saving. Like Abraham and Sarah, we can't see Christ. We can't truly see Christ without the work of God. To see Christ, we have to see our need of Christ. It's to see that we have been found by God. What put Hagar in a position to see and to name God? She realized that without God, her only alternative was death in the wilderness. God alone offered her life. And we, all of us, are in the same position. And this is the only vantage point from the vantage point of death that we can truly see Christ. We do not see Christ if we do not look at him and see both our sin and God's love for us. When we look at Christ, we see the one who died because of our sins. And when we look at Christ, we see the one who did it because of his love for us. If you look at Christ and you do not see your own sin, you have not truly seen Christ. If you look at Christ but do not see God's love, then you truly have not seen Christ. Yet to see both of these truths together at the same time, this alone is to see Christ. It is to see and be seen by God himself. And like Abraham and Sarah, this too will enable us to see one another. See your neighbor, love them, know them, do not reduce them to what they can do for you. Do not reduce them to servant. Recognize them as one whom Christ lovingly and willingly gave his life. And like Abraham and Sarah, this might very well start with an act of repentance for the ways that we've attempted to define others according to our own self-interest. Because these neighbors, all of us, are persons that Christ has given his life for. This is who they are. God has named them, and God alone has given them their personhood. He's given his very son, Jesus Christ, so that they would know that their worth is not based on the judgments passed on them by others, 
but only on the love that God has for them. And so a final question we should ask is how can we train ourselves to see others in this way? There, there's a great uh, little book on, on sin, a horrible topic, but a, a good book, by a theologian named uh, Cornelius Plantiga. And he makes an, an interesting kind of offhanded quick remark about Romans 12:15. And Romans 12:15 is that classic passage wherein Paul calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And Plantinga makes the interesting point that it's actually much easier to weep with those who weep than to rejoice with those who rejoice. When we're weeping with those who weep, we're with people who are not in a situation that we would envy. But when we rejoice with those who rejoice, we actually have the temptation of envying these persons as, as well, which makes it hard to rejoice, to truly rejoice with them. And think about it. If you are in academia, how easy is it to rejoice with a colleague who has just written a great article and a great publication or got a great grant? Especially, perhaps, if you have been rejected by this journal or you yourself were denied for this grant. Think about your coworkers. Can you rejoice in their skills and accomplishments, even when these are the same skills and accomplishments that you yourself wish that you had? Can you rejoice in that? If you're a parent, can you rejoice with another parent whose children are succeeding in all the ways that your children are struggling? Can you really rejoice with that parent? Or like Sarah, if you are struggling with infertility, can you really rejoice with another who has just welcomed their first child into the world? These are not easy things. But if the Spirit can teach us to do this, we will begin seeing other persons as not, sorry, we will begin seeing, truly seeing other persons and not treating them as instruments for meeting our own desires. Because what we will be learning to do is to rejoice in the fulfillment of their desires, to rejoice in the fulfillment of their needs. And again, these are the very people for which Christ has given his life. And so he calls us to love and to rejoice with them. But of course, just as with Hagar, Christ has come to save us as well. And what is the name of God come to save us? Well, that name is Jesus. Yet to call him Jesus is to call ourselves those who need saving, to call ourselves those who are lost. Even more, it's to call ourselves those who God loves and will go to the greatest lengths to save. Again, the Bible is not a book of heroes. It's a book about people like you and me who are broken and desperately need his grace. And this is the grace of Jesus Christ himself. Recall the words of Charles Taylor regarding the purpose of a name. Taylor says, if you know the name of someone, you can call him. Call upon Christ. Jesus is the name that God himself has given us. This is how he tells us to call upon him as the living one who saves, the God who gives life to those who are dead in sin. Simply call upon him. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. See him, know him, love him. 
Like Hagar, name him from the vantage point of death, for he is the one who sees you, who knows you, who loves you, and names you. He has called upon you, and all we have to do in return is simply call upon him. He is the living one who sees and is seen. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you not only that you see us, but that you are seen and that you have made yourself seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If we have seen him, then we have seen you, Father. If we have any question about what you are like or your love for us, we simply need to look to Christ. Help us to do this and help us to truly, truly see your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.